Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, welcome to another episode of New Books and Terrorism and Organised Crime. My name is Mark Locks, your host from Brisbane in Australia. And today we're talking to Jared Gilbert about his new book, Patched, The History of Gangs in New Zealand. How are you going, Jared? Very well, thanks, mate. That's good, that's good. And uh, which part of New Zealand are you in at the moment? Uh, Christchurch. Ah, so, the earthquake city. Indeed, yeah. We're, thankfully, we're, uh, we're over those now and we're, we're, we're sort of on the way back up, but it's been a hell of a journey. Yes, yes, I've got uh, lots of in-laws from Christchurch. Uh, I mean, from Christchurch, because they're pretty much all over here now. So, as here we are. Yes. Um, but thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, I think the first thing we'll talk about, as I said, is uh, a bit of background about you. So tell us about yourself, where you've come from, and how you ended up doing this sort of research and ended up writing this book. Um, look, I think how I got here um, was a terrible mix of Ignorance and arrogance, really. I, I mean, I certainly not. I don't even come from a background um, with any gangs in it. Um, very middle class. Um, I don't think I even sort of seen a gang member really. And I was sitting in a lecture theatre, um, hearing that there was a dearth of research on gangs in New Zealand. Um, and just at that time, there was um, uh, numerous laws going through Parliament targeting gangs. And I thought, well, isn't it interesting that we're putting these quite significant laws through, um, and yet we know nothing about them? And so I. Did a, a small project, and then one thing leads to another, and next thing you know, you're, you know, in the mongrel mob uh, headquarters, you know, at three in the morning, getting drunk, it's, and, and you don't, don't really know how you got there. <laughs> and, well, that was probably true for a lot of other people in the room with you at the <laughs> time. Maybe. And um, I mean, I can understand you can get the opportunity to to do the research, but uh, the book, this excellent book, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. How did the actual um, offer for publication come around? Um, well, actually, because while the while I was conducting the research, um, obviously people were quite interested in it because it hadn't been done before, and gangs um, are probably overstated um, in New Zealand. Their significance is overstated, but nevertheless, they've got a, they've had a very important, long, and often quite violent um, and intriguing history in New Zealand. So I think everybody ha- um, has sort of a, a curiosity about them. Um, and so when I was doing the research, there was a fair bit of interest around it, and a, and a, and a couple of or three publishers actually approached me, um, interested in the book, and, and there was one that just was just really persistent actually, and we ended up sort of, um, you know, I thought he was a good bloke, and and, and yeah, and, and that was that really. It wasn't. It was, it was all reasonably straightforward. Yeah, because you're in a nice, unique situation, and in case there's any people who listen to this who don't realise the size of New Zealand. What's the population now? About four million. That's right, about around there. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this nice and close, reasonably small community where someone could actually do the history of all the gangs. Yeah, that's right. And and I mean it was, yeah, that that is right. I mean it's there's a there was a fair bit of, of travel involved, obviously. And I mean you know at times I was out in the field for um, sort of two months at a time, which was sort of quite tiring getting around the place, particularly when. Um, when you're in environments that are obviously very, um, you know, heavy drinking and, and, and partying and, and quite violent, so it was, they felt like incredibly long trips. But yeah, um, though I was able to sort of 
to, to gather up, uh, you know, the the the, the, the history, you know, a very broad history. Which, to be quite honest, is one of the reasons it took me so long because it was it was a very, you know, it was a sort of a, a big topic. But you're right, I was I was lucky that I could do it, and I think. Um, I think this is. I mean, it is a big study, um, and it's a, it's it's a, it's a fairly big book. Um, but like anything, I think there's there's so much more room for investigation. I certainly don't think it's um, it's definitive by any stretch. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's just a, a a good foundation, perhaps, for further work. Yes, but uh, as I said before, the fact that you can cover all of the games at once provides a quite unique viewpoint on games, whereas other people in other countries, even in Australia, which is only five times the size of New Zealand, no one would ever attempt to cover every type of game in one publication. At, yeah, least, at yeah. least not historically. Yeah, um, but I, well, and I did want that, and, and I think in so many ways you can read the book um, as almost a history of New Zealand. I mean, I, you know, you're so, I sort of try and use the gangs to look at sort of social, economic and political situations that are happening throughout those throughout those decades because while the gangs um, sort of do live in their own sort of world and they sort of reject um, the outsiders um, and and mainstream society, they are deeply embedded and influenced by what happens um, in society. We can see that with their evolutionary progress over the years. You know, as society changes, so do the gangs. That's right. Um, Anyone who reads the book will definitely see the change in the nature of government in New Zealand, and they probably see the same reflection in their own. Anyone from a Western country would see the same reflections in their own governments from fear, moral panics and conservatism to somewhat more enlightened and not necessarily completely enlightened points of view of how they're going to deal with the gangs. Yeah, well, look, I think um, Western democracies have tended to... Yeah, they share similar characteristics, don't they? So they do tend to deal with these um, problems in reasonably similar ways. So I think, yeah, I think there are, there are significant parallels between what's happened in New Zealand and, um, and and elsewhere. And, you know, you say that, you know, that term moral panic, clearly that's not a New Zealand concept. And I think it's one that can be applied to kings the world over, um, really, you know, when, the, when there's a sort of high-profile incidence, um, you know, and there's um, political mileage to be made out of it, um, often... The response is more about political efficacy rather than sort of good public policy. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, on that point, let's let's run ourselves back to the 1950s and start off with the rock and roll era. And can you tell us about the formation of the gangs and how they learnt from American culture? Yeah, well, look, um, New Zealand is really unique in so much as the Hell's Angels um, formed a chapter in Auckland. Um, uh, sort of, uh, it pre came in nineteen fifty nine. Officially established in sixty one, but um, but but certainly um, were established before that, probably in nineteen sixty. Um, and this fundamentally changed New Zealand's gang scene. And and because this this chapter, just to put this into a, a wider perspective, you know, that was only the fourth chapter anywhere in the world, um, and the first chapter outside of California. So you know that that happened in Auckland, New Zealand, seems seems amazing, but. Our gangs before that time, um, whether they were milk bar cowboys uh, who rode motorcycles or sort of bodgies that were um, sort of street street gangs, um, were fluid in nature and they, they had a fleeting existence. So gangs would sort of spring up. They were a youth phenomenon. Um, and as um, a prominent leader or a prominent member of a group got married or got a job and settled down, then the gang would kind of dissolve and another one would sort of spring up to take its place. So you had this kind of constant rejuvenation of these gangs sort of springing up, falling away, and there was no sort of permanence either to the gangs themselves nor to the membership. 
Yep. yep. Now, what, I, might just, I might just explain that to listeners what a bodgy is. I mean, the English would call them the rockers as opposed to the mods. Yeah. They're, they're the, the leather-clad, brill-green hair crew. Yeah, actually, actually more, perhaps more the teddy boys for us, the bodgies. Yeah. The, the milk bar cowboys were us for the, were the rockers. Mm. Right, uh, so right. The two just sort of distinct youth movements. Mm. But 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 um, yeah. So so what what happened with the Hell's Angels came is that suddenly they had um, a common identifier in the back patch. They had an organisational structure like a clear a president and a, and a secretary or a treasurer, um, a sergeant at arms and a road captain. So they had these sort of hierarchical you know organisational structures. They had clearly defined rules. They got clubhouses and so they they built up this. They they, de- they they developed this thing that existed over and above the sum of its members. So something else was created. Now what that meant was. When people left the gang, so you still had this rejuvenation, it was still a young man's game. When people left, the positions would sort of be filled because this entity kind of existed. So this template that was established by the Hells Angels and quickly copied by all others uh, meant that the gangs that formed in that time have existed in New Zealand ever since. None, none that, have, uh, that, that don't have that structure and only the ones that did survived over time. And so it was a, a fundamental um, transformation between sort of fleeting youth groups through to um, these these fixed gangs that, that existed in, in, in New Zealand um, and, and still exist to this day. Right. And let's run through the sort of gangs that are there because there's a, some difference between the gangs that are European-based and then um, more Indigenous-based. And might, maybe we need a bit of a background on, on the, the nature of the two different parts of the community as well. Yeah, well, initially um, in New Zealand in the 50s um, and even sort of into the 60s, um, or at least in the early part of the 60s, the gang situation, whether it be street gangs or those that rode motorcycles, um, were Pākehā, as we call them, which is um, European New Zealanders, white New Zealanders. Um, now, what happened in the in the in the was was beginning to happen in the late sixties, but real oh, sorry in the late fifties, but certainly into the nineteen sixties, was uh, an urban drift where Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, were beginning to move into the cities, um, often because they were dispossessed of land, um, but equally because they were looking for better lifestyle, really, you know, uh, work and money and and what the city could offer. Now, what happened is there's this massive clash of culture with the, with the traditional sort of folkways and mores that, that bound Maori society together in the, in the country didn't really work in the cities and they sort of, you know, and they struggled to adjust. And of course, there was racism and, and the like. Um, whilst New Zealand's race relations have traditionally been seen as very good, nevertheless, it existed. And so there was this conflict and problems. And what we're very aware from um, research, not just my research, uh, gang research, but gang research all around the world, is that. When you're, false, when you're faced with these certain difficulties in, in city situations, particularly you know, particularly urban and city situations, um, gang formation is inevitable. If you've got you know problems with at school, you've got problems with employment um, and, 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 and and racial issues and the like, then these ethnic ethnic minorities tend to form gangs. And this is exactly what happened. So the what was a Pakia issue suddenly and quickly became a Maori issue, and Maoris begin to dominate the gangs now. While some joined the motorcycle clubs, largely they joined, um, formed large street gangs. And um, but unlike street gangs around the world, um, in, in fact, unique to New Zealand, they they put on back patches. They adopted the look and the structure of the Hell's Angels and the outlaw motorcycle clubs. Um, and so, hence why our big uh, street gangs here, like the Black Power and the Mongrel Mob, all wear back patches. They look 
like bikies, um, but they don't go around on motorcycles. So, yeah, a very interesting scene. And what that did mean is it, it meant that they had, um, you know, all of those um, factors, that organisational uh, hierarchy, the um, common identifiers and the like that allowed them to achieve um, longevity as well. And so they became mainstays of the gang scene, in fact, dominated. Right, right. So um, do you want to run us through some of the major gangs, these long-surviving gangs in New Zealand? Well, there's um, there's a a plethora of them, really. Um, The main street gangs in New Zealand and the the, the primary rivals, by far and away, far and away, the biggest groups in New Zealand are the Mongrel Mob and the Black Power. Their demographics um, are near-identical, primarily Maori, some Pacific, a splattering of Pākehā or, or white. Um, poor, of, of course, um, you know, similar education, similar backgrounds, you know, all of these things, yet um, formidable enemies. And then you've got some other smaller street gangs um, like the, um, the Nomad and the, the Headhunters, say. And then um, the Outlaw Motorcycle Clubs, which, you know, anything from the Hells Angels and the Banditos that are quite a recent arrival, and the Rebels, which Australians will be very familiar with, um, through to homegrown ones, um, Devil's Henchmen, Epitaph Riders, Highway 61, numerous groups. Yep, yep. And what's the um, interplay? You're talking about rivalry between uh, Black Power and Mongrel Mob. Is there any interplay between the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs and the Street Gangs? Yeah, look, there, there, there has been... Um, traditionally, the biggest rivals have been, they sort of stick to their own set, so it's bikey versus bikey and street gang versus street gang. They tend to be. Um, but in communities where, say, there's only one outlaw biker group and one street gang, then they'll find ways to fight themselves because everybody needs an enemy. Mm. Um, but, they, but yeah, so and, and because they, they do share a similar look and they've got patches, they, they are sort of seen as all sort of all right to be uh, friends or enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what sort of activity are we talking about here? I mean, historically, is it really just the normal, what I call the buffet street violence of drinking and punching, um, street racing, that sort of thing? Um, is there any movement into the classic outlaw motorcycle gang organised crime activity? Yeah, look, um, initially when this, these were youth groups now, sort of the, in the inception, sort of in the 60s and 70s in New Zealand, um, it was all drinking... Um, brawling, you know, and that, and that was it. You know, you might have got, you know, the, the the odd bike would get stolen, and there might be the odd armed robbery or something like that. But but largely um, boisterous sort of activities rather than profit driven criminal activities. Now, I mentioned that with the development of back patches and the, and the hierarchical structure and the, and the rule base that, that the Hells Angels brought, that the gangs started to achieve longevity. For a long time, even though the gangs survived, the turnover was very high. There were still youth groups, largely, you know, men in their late teens or perhaps early 20s. Now, what happened um, in the 1980s, really, um, when the economy um, fell through the floor um, and unemployment rose, was that there was sort of no immediate out for them. In the past, employment was full, so if a gang member got sick of the gang or or sort of grew up or matured, they could get a job and that was an easy out for them. When that door was closed, when the economy no longer allowed them to do that, we saw membership, um, the the age of membership increase exponentially. So suddenly we've got, you know... um, you know, older men in their 30s and 40s in these gangs because they just never left. Mm. Now, 
as they sort of lost that sort of boisterous adventurism and that sort of brawling, they kind of looked around and went, well, how do I make a crust out of this? And so what we started to see was the the moves um, into profit-driven crime, primarily the drug trade. Now, in the 1990s, this was... It was quite common, not universal, but quite common that the groups themselves would engage in what we would what we would consider organised criminal activity. So that you know they would sit around and go, right, we've got you know ten ounces to sell. Um, everyone's going to do this, this, and this, or we've got a tinny house down here, you know, like a, like a drug house that's going to sell the drugs, and and, and so it was quite organised. Now, what happened in the nineteen nineties? The proceeds of crimes that came along, and there was. Um, greater use of interception warrants and bugging and things like this. And the gangs went, hang on, one bug now um, and we're, we're all taken out and we'll, we'll lose our clubhouse through the proceeds of crime. Like the state can take the property and things like this. So they went, all right, we've got to quick knock this on the head. So what we see now, the model that runs, is that there are criminals within the gangs yep. who, who deal drugs um, or, 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 or whatever, um, have burglary rings, whatever. Um, but they're not... Um, as a general rule, almost universal in fact, they're not organised as a mafia would be organised, if you know what I mean. That they're, mm. you know, they're, they're just people that happen to be wearing patches who, who conduct criminal activity, but the groups themselves are not um, per se criminal. That's exactly what we're seeing here, the same thing, the same age range and the demographics of membership and the same activity of criminal organisations within the gang as opposed yeah. to the gang being a criminal organisation. Yeah, which is, which, um, I don't know how it is over there, but certainly, and I, and I suspect it's the same. That's not well understood um, in New Zealand, in fact. No. I think if you, t- if you took a poll at, you know, at any time, you'd say that the gangs were responsible for all of the drugs and that, 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 they're, that they're running like mafia organisations, whereas in reality they're responsible for a very small, um, statistically, um, through arrest rates and incarceration rates, a very small percentage of the drug trade, yes. and um, uh, and do not operate as organised criminal groups. But that's contrary to popular opinion. And, 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 what, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is because there is such electoral advantage um, in the gangs, politicians have, can make all sorts of wild um, accusations, and because the gangs don't speak to the media, um, they tend to stick quite naturally um, in the public mind. Yeah, no, that is exactly the same situation here, and I've done more media in the last three months than I've done in my life trying to explain exactly what you just said to the people yeah, in Australia. So. But, but isn't it difficult? Um, yeah. It's difficult because when, when these views have been uh, have become so entrenched in the popular consciousness, um, to to squeeze them out. Um, even even if you've got all of the the, the the statistics and all of the evidence in the world, is still not easy. No, it is not. It is not. Um, but books like yours might help. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I, well, yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Uh, that sort of nicely brings us into what is the the government and police response to gangs in New Zealand. Look, look the, the police are the police, aren't they? They're not social science or, or scientists, <laughs> nor should we expect them to be. So they've really only got one response to it, and that's to crack down on these buggers, you know, and they, that's been the response from the 1950s right through. Um, often they've been sort of told that they need to sort of move in one direction or the other, but the, un, the underlying response for them is just go hard at them and just get them now. Whilst this is quite understandable, and there have been some excellent examples of some very, very good policing when the gangs in New Zealand breach sort of uh, the gang community balance, as I call it, you know, like when they step outside of what the community is prepared to accept, the, the cops are, can be very, very good at very, very effective at dealing with that. But 
if and and and, and as they they do from time to time in New Zealand, they get too zealous. They they um, they go too hard at groups um, when perhaps they're not doing. Um, you know, too too hard. You know, if one group misbehaves and they go at all of the groups in the community, and so so some groups feel they're being unduly picked on or, or targeted, then what it does do, um, and this is very well highlighted in, in, in my work, is that it tends to lead to gang cohesion. So, um, so poorly targeted police activity. Um, and overzealous police activity has a, a contrary effect. It, it hardens the groups, draws them together, and creates a greater commitment. Um, so instead of breaking them apart, it actually makes them stronger, which, um, uh, yeah, is a, is, 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 a, is a very most unfortunate consequence. Well, it's actually very similar to what happens in um, anti-terrorist activity. Um, I had a PhD student who actually calls it iatrogenic activity. It's a medical term meaning where you go into... A doctor goes to heal somebody and ends up causing more harm than good. Oh, I like that term. Yes, he'll be very happy for you to borrow it. <laughs> so yes, it, and, and yeah, it's it's well documented through history in, in uh, people who fight insurgencies and terrorist groups that they exactly that same response. But, 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 but once again, and you talked about the frustrations, or we we both talked about the frustrations of um, trying to communicate um, difficult messages um, or altern- uh, or, or more correct. Um, um, uh, interpretations of the scene to the public. Well, trying to change the police mind, uh, the, 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 the minds of the police are um, is even is even harder. Um, they yeah they they have a fairly fixed view um, about yes. the gangs. It's very very hard to change that. Well, they're seeing it all from one particular perspective, as you were saying. So it uh... yeah, and, and and look, in so many ways, I don't blame them. In the same ways, I don't blame the public because you can see how this comes about. I mean, when I was spending time in the field. I'd be sitting at, I'd be standing, say, in a car park at a, at a, at a you know, fast food joint or wherever I was um, with some gang members, and we're just sort of hanging out, and they're all talking having, and joking about and laughing. And then suddenly the cops will come along, and that, that sort of change, and the next thing you know, they're throwing abuse and the like. Well, see, so the cops only, if the police are only ever seeing that, they're only ever locking them up when, they, when they've, they've undertaken criminal activity. It's quite um, easy to see how they would how they would gain a jaundiced view. I mean, it's quite natural, I'm sure. Yeah, and then you get that spiral because then the gang members also only see the police responding like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, yeah, they feed exactly. each other. And, the, and this is, and see, this is where, you know, the police have to be professional in everything they do. And, and, yeah. and New Zealand police are, are I mean, they're, they're uncorruptible. Um, they, they really are. They might break the rule from time to time, or historically at least, not so much now, to get a conviction, but they will not take it backhanders. There's much, there's much that, that the New Zealand public should feel, feel very proud um, of the New Zealand police. But from time to time they do get, you know, you know, there's always an errant cop who will sort of go overboard and, and the damage that sort of does, you know, it sort of just sends things, it just sends things backwards in relation to, to good policing. Um, but, yeah, they, they don't like to be criticised, the cops, I've got to say. Yeah. But you did have one um, Prime Minister, I believe, who, who actually uh, associated himself with the gangs for a while. Look, absolutely remarkable. Yeah, Rob, Rob a conservative Mon- prime minister. Yeah, a, a, a conservative prime minister who indeed was at his probably at, at, at his worst in dealing with sort of race relations. Um, you know, I think you know early on in his prime ministership, he said he'd ban young Maori louts, you know, indigenous louts, um, to the countryside and things like this. You know, he was a he was a hard, tough nosed, um, sort of dictatorial type uh, man, really. But he, for whatever reason. He got a soft spot for the gangs and, and, and wanted to put them to work and try and turn them, really tried to turn them around. And he, he didn't just do this sort of, 
he didn't just sort of send his people in to kind of do this, you know, the bureaucrats or, or, the, or the, the social workers or whatever. He um, he went and did it. He really rolled up his sleeves himself. And there's one amazing story of him meeting um, Black Power, the, the, the large street gang, one of you know the, the, one of the big two street gangs in New Zealand. He was meeting them at a tavern at a pub um, in Wellington, and the, mm. the in the country's capital. And um, surrounded, he was quite a short man, and surrounded by all these big Black Power um, members, the publican didn't know what was going on, fearing a riot, he tossed them all out. So the Prime Minister actually got booted out of a pub in Wellington, you know. You know, the police were called and all of this, and he went back to their clubhouse, and um, he was drinking whiskey with them. Rob Muldoon, the Prime Minister, wasn't wasn't afraid of a drink, and he was drinking whiskey with them, and, um, and one young gang member was flicking the dregs of his beer at him, sort of, sort of surreptitiously, kind of, I don't know, just sort of maybe he was a bit drunk or just sort of trying it on, really. And Rob Muldoon drained his, the Prime Minister drained his whiskey and then threw his ice at this young gang member. <laughs> well, the gang couldn't be more impressed. Here was a man who was not only hard drinking but prepared to stick up for himself, you know, two traits that the gang only could only admire. So they had this, they had this amazing relationship, yeah, and he went out of his way to... Um, to, to, to um, engage the gangs and sort of make work schemes. Um, it was when unemployment was starting to climb and he, and, 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 and he and the country sort of thought that it would be a temporary blip, so he thought if he could keep the gangs employed, they wouldn't become divorced from the labour market. And, um, and yeah, so he, he put a, an enormous amount of effort in, but, um, uh, yeah, once he was gone, it certainly all disappeared. Yeah, yeah. So was he successful in any way in... Well, those schemes that he put in place, these sort of make-work schemes, um, were—I mean, there was no, there was no systematic evaluation of it. And so, from this um, distance, because we're talking now, sort of in the in the early eighties, uh, up until the mid eighties, um, it's 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 difficult from this distance to assess it. But certainly at the time, um, anywhere from the politicians to the police to community leaders and to the, from the gang members themselves were saying that it was stopping gang inter-gang violence. Um, by keeping them occupied. Um, however, there were some high-profile abuses of the schemes and um, and they became an anathema to um, the free market ideals of the government that replaced his, who, you know, you can't have make-work schemes in, in a free market um, uh, economy. And so they were, they were, they were, they were scratched. Yeah, yeah. And, and never to be seen, really. I mean, it was, it was the only... It was the only time that we've really, in New Zealand, um, although perhaps in recent times with some LA-style street gangs, we're starting to have some social initiatives, but in the history of patched gangs, the traditional gangs in New Zealand, it was really the only effort at seeing, not only seeing them having a social causation, not just being a criminal problem, but a social problem, um, and trying to deal with them and, and with social policies. Um, other than that, it's, it's all been about um, just leaving it up to the cops and, and it being a law enforcement issue. Right. Um, with the more recent migration, so there's traditionally, as you're saying, it was the Europeans, the Maori, and some of the islanders as well. Now that you've got a much larger um, plethora of people coming from around the world in New Zealand, has there been a change in the face of gangs? Well, we've got we're starting to develop a, a, a quite a significant Asian population in New Zealand, but the. Uh, the, the reason we've got that, although we've got ever since, you know, gold mining times back in the late 1800s, we've had a, a, a small Chinese population, but um, we haven't really had a significant Asian population since the 1990s. 
um, the early 1990s, really, um, when the economy was was incredibly dire, unemployment was high, and we were seeking um, capital from Asia. So we, we were attracting wealthy um, Asian people to come and migrate um, for, for, to, to bring capital with them to, to hopefully bolster or kickstart the economy. So what we've seen ever since, really, is a, um, a targeting of um, higher um, socioeconomic Asian people, and and so and, and and given that gangs tend to come from the lower socioeconomic classes, barring some errant sort of students um, who, who may be over here unsupervised, we we we, we haven't really got um, any other ethnic gang problems. Some organised crime problems potentially within Asian communities, but again, very very minor. Uh, the Asian population in New Zealand tends to be um, uh, very law-abiding. Oh well, okay. So it's very different. I mean. Uh, certainly in Australia and other places I've been, um, there tends to be in new migrant communities a brand new street gang problem or a brand new street gang phenomenon, I probably should say, that, that develops. Um, and that's quite unique that it's not happening over there. Yeah, well, as I say, I, I see it as a socioeconomic issue, really. I think um, you don't tend to, oh, certainly in New Zealand and, and the literature I've seen around the world, you know, you don't tend to get middle class gangs. And if you do, um, and if you do, they're, 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 they don't last long. You know, they're a, they're a sort of a, they're a youthful adventure, and then they sort of fade away. Um, and so, yeah, we we just, we just don't have it. So, um, the communities that are most depressed in New Zealand that that, that have are faced with the greatest hardship tend to be Maori uh, and Pacific communities, and hence why they are overrepresented in gang statistics. Mm. And and interestingly, and whilst one doesn't want to be too economically deterministic, I, I don't think you can deny it as a bedrock factor. But I mean, when, when the economy was at its worst in New Zealand and unemployment was at its highest, um, up around just over 10%, I think, in the early 1990s, you know, it's no surprise that this started to bite into Pākehā or European New Zealanders. And so we see the advent of skinhead gangs and white power gangs. You know, um, you know, so I, I, you know, the correlation is, is all there um, for, uh, you know, the, the, an influence, an economic influence, if not, um, uh, you know, you know, with with other factors, obviously. Right, right. Which actually, which which is one, one other thing, because I think the gangs have been so um, uh, 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 dominated by Maori and Pacific peoples. I think in New Zealand, we've tended to rely on a fairly lazy. Um, interpretation of why that is, and I think you know, and I, and you said you, know, you said it bandied about that it's because Maori and Pacific peoples are more tribal, so they're sort of more naturally inclined toward gang formation. I, I think that's a nonsense. I think if uh, if the if the social conditions are right, um, Pakeha or European New Zealanders are just as um, apt at forming gangs as Maori and Pacific peoples. So I think we have to look um, elsewhere elsewhere for uh, explanation other than um, some some you know uh, tribal. Uh, yeah. Some strange anthropological. Yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just don't think it exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, were there any changes in government responses? Um, as you were saying, some of the gangs were changing. You had the rise of the, the skinheads. Has there also been any um, resurgence in stigmatization or panics in the community about gangs? Yeah, look, from time to time, um, we. We absolutely do, yeah. I mean, and, and, and usually these are usually these are preceded by sort of catalytic um, events, you know, some sort of um, high-profile, often horrific, um, violent uh, crime that focuses the mind and the attention. Now, 
just at the moment, um, for example, and, and, and you know, we, there's heightened awareness because the banditos um, have just uh, very recently come to New Zealand and, you know, suddenly we've got a new group and it's, and, and, you know, and so people, uh, you know, particularly the media love it, don't they? Um, and so suddenly it's, it's a, the, the, this sort of this high-profile nature. Now, I think if there was any sort of incident to happen now, I think we would, we've got all the conditions ready for, for, for a moral panic, really. Um, but the gangs in New Zealand have aged, um, and LA-style street gangs aside, the, the gangs, the traditional gangs, the patch gangs, the average age has increased so much. And as we're aware, I think probably um, from personal experience uh, as a man nearing 40 myself, um, you know, and, and certainly from um, statistics, you know, men in their 40s and 50s, aren't as likely to engage in violence um, or as quick to, to, to violent activities as, as men in their late teens or early 20s. Yeah. And so the, the gang violence that was so common in New Zealand in the 70s and the 80s, and even into the 1990s actually, is just so rare now. It just it just doesn't really um, happen to the same degree that it does. Now, I, I see in Australia, you still, you know, you, you have quite a lot of gang, and well, it appears to me from the media, and I guess I only see the, you know, them when they make the media, but, um, it, it, you know, your bikies still seem to be battling it out, whereas ours have sort of come to some sort of uneasy truce. But what we've seen in recent um, years is an upswing, an upsurge after after the, the outlaw bikers were sort of almost in a moribund state. They were looking to be in terminal decline. Certain groups were falling over. They weren't rejuvenating with new members. Um, they, were, they, were, they were losing members very, very, at a very rapid rate. Just in the last two or three years, we've seen this big upswing big remarkable turnaround where it's become almost back in fashion again the outlaw bikers and these new groups either are, are, are forming in New Zealand like the rebels and the banditos or um, it's sort of the you know um, just indigenous groups are springing up in New Zealand and I do wonder you know and, it, and it's just it's just reminiscent of the early days of the of the scene when it was sort of forming here when there was so much violence and I wonder you know in, in, in an ever crowded room someone is likely to get elbowed so I think we're as you know, I, 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 I just sense we're on the. You know, there's a real chance that we may return to to violence um, in the near future. There's a very. I mean, it's it's quite possible anyway. Yeah. Well, I know um, the research I do. We've got the Finks over here, and now just been re- patched over as Mongols, and the average age of the chapter on the Gold Coast is 42. So we've got that same aging population, yeah. um, but. The violence is not as widespread as it appears, I think, and it's much more associated where... You know, we were talking before about the uh, organised crime groups within the gangs. Yeah. The violence is actually the organised crime groups within the gangs rather than the gangs right. running the gangs. Although we, the big brawl that was on the Gold Coast was over the fact that the uh, president of one club was going out with the ex-girlfriend of the president of another club. And uh, surprisingly, that's what caused the government crackdown on organised crime. About, yeah, fight over a girl, so it wasn't even over drugs or anything. But uh, yeah. yeah, well, this is. I mean, and, and you see here. Um, I mean, we've had some. Um, we had a, a violent incident. Oh, gee, it must be going back about two thousand and seven or two thousand and six, perhaps like a, a little while back now. Maybe two thousand and eight. Sorry, I can't recall. And and Wong and Nui and uh, um, uh, there was a brawl at a service station initially between the Hell's Angels and Mongrel Mob, and then not long after. There was a um, a shooting where an innocent, oh, well, a, a, the daughter, an innocent girl, a two year old, was shot um, in, a, in, a, in a gang shootout. Now, these were violent incidents, but the the the, the and, and terrible incidents, you know. But but the response was to ban gang patches. So suddenly you've got 
um, a response that wouldn't have solved the problem in the first place. You know, somehow it just gets lost in translation. And, and, the, and the default position, even after those incidents, was, well, these brawls are all about, um, you know, drug crime, are all about territory for drugs. Well, they, they had absolutely nothing to do with drugs whatsoever. You know, I know what both instances started, both instances, but it's just a, an easy default option for, for politicians no, oh, I think so. And, and, and it's very unhelpful. You know, it no, well, the response of banning clubs or patches says they banned the entire clubs over here. It's almost like they say, well, this is all about organised crime, but we're going to respond to the club as a club instead of an organised crime group. So it's, they're almost ignoring their own argument when they oh, develop the response. Yeah, look, I don't think politicians are uh, often known for their for their um, logic and wisdom, but when it comes to, when it comes to gangs, they're at their worst. Yes, yes, it, it's certainly in New Zealand. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's a disgrace because, um, you know, often oftentimes they will have good intentions, but more often than not, um, there's just such a it's just a cynic, such an obvious cynical ploy to garner to garner votes that it's it's you know it, it should be scorned on and they they should really be held up for the charlatans that they are. Yeah, yeah. So where do you see um, gangs going in the future in New Zealand? Gee, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a tough old question. Um, you know, with this upswing in the outlaw clubs, that really took me by surprise, I must say. But I think the the future. In New Zealand, appears to me to be um, with the LA-style street gangs, so these Bloods and Crip type gangs yeah. who, who, who no longer wear patches, um, who dress obviously like you know, the, you know their, their American sort of namesakes. Um, they're growing fast. They tend to be younger, so they have that violent component to them, which has disappeared a little bit. And with the older gangs. They, unlike the traditional patch gangs in New Zealand who sort of reformed in that sort of hippie era and wanted to drop out of society and really didn't want for much, they wore rough clothes to sort of show their rejection of society and they just sort of dropped out and sort of said they'd do their own thing. Unlike that, these new LA-style street gangs based on sort of an MTV culture want the bling, they want the, they want the, um, the flash cars, they want the gold jewellery, they want the big houses, they want the designer clothes. Now... If you've got those goals, but your means to achieve them is working in the warehouse at best or perhaps the unemployment benefit, then um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that that's going to lead to profit-driven crime, you know, that they're going to reach for profit-driven crime. So I think we've got a, a, a more violence and more profit-driven crime with these, with these young groups. Um, and, and this transformation, I initially thought that many of these groups would just be, these young groups would just be absorbed into the tr- traditional group. So the patched gangs like the Mungle Bomb, Black Power, would look at them, these young guys, and sort of go, well, who's got good form? We'll take him, we'll take him, and they'd you know, sort of dissolve them like that, and they'd just sort of be assimilated into the mainstream groups. Mm. And I thought one of the reasons that would happen is because these young guys would actually end up in prison, find that a bit tough, and look, seek the protection of older groups as well. But what we're seeing quite clearly is that these groups are surviving in prison. So we're seeing the percentage increase in these younger groups grow and grow and grow. And obviously that's mirroring what's happening on the street. So I think without doubt they're the future um, of the New Zealand gang scene, and, and, and it's a very untidy future in that. And what is perhaps a little unfortunate is that this um, sort of revolution, if you will, within the scene is occurring um, almost, if, if, if not unnoticed, certainly no one's sort of really looking to do much about it. And I think that may well 
uh, be to our detriment um, in, in the future. I think if we could look back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, say, and with what we know now, what we might have done differently, um, I think they'll be lamenting a similar sort of um, hypothesis, you know, a similar situation um, in 10 years from now. It's a bit strange, really, isn't it? You've gone sort of full circle. The, the gang started with um, people in New Zealand emulating American gangs in the form of Hell's Angels. Yeah. And then you've yeah. come back to them emulating yeah. the gangster rap gangs. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, yeah, full circle is full circle, is right? And which, again, though, does sort of make live this whole idea that the Americanization of sort of New Zealand society, which pe- some, some, some sort of people bemoan, um, certainly as far as gangs concerned, is not new. Um, uh, we've always been influenced by um, international trends. You know, we had the death head, we had the Hell's Angels death head uh, in New Zealand before we had Ronald McDonald, you know, the, <laughs> before we had the Golden Arches. I just love the point in the book where you actually say they actually hand-painted it on themselves. They didn't even have proper patches, so they just bought leather jackets and painted it on. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, great. So what's next for you then? Where uh, You were saying you're actually on your own. You're not at a university. You're researching on your own. And um, what are you What are you working on? Yeah, well, I lecture at Canterbury University, um, but I just contract there, so I, I research um, for private clients. But um, I'm... I'm but I'm, I'm doing that really just to fund um, the book on um, doing murder, a, a history of New Zealand, um, as its working title. So I'm looking at murder and how that's um, influenced and changed New Zealand. So I've gone from one extremely big subject to a slightly bigger one because obviously I'm a devil for punishment, but <laughs> I'm hopeful or I'm optimistic if, if I'm nothing else. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> Love your optimism. I mean, and once again, you've got a nice small country, so you can grab a topic like that and run with it. Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully so. Well, I hope it's. Uh, I'm sure it will be as good as uh, this book that we're discussing now. Um, I suppose that's probably a good point to to wrap it up. So, Jared Gilbert, thank you very very much for just uh, talking to me today. Oh, absolute pleasure. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. No, that's all right. And uh, yes, we've been talking to Jared Gilbert about his book, Patch to the History of Gangs in New Zealand. Thank you.